Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 9, where the title of the message is, God can save anyone. God can save anyone. Isn't that good news? That's as good as God healing, right? He can save anyone. This week I got an email. It was so encouraging. Somebody who's attended here quite a while, if we're running by schedule, we'll be enjoying a powerful word from the book of Acts in chapter 9. It will be a beautiful historic moment for our family. 21 years ago, in November, the book of Acts chapter 9 was preached, and my husband went forward for salvation. Even though things didn't immediately change, everything in his heart changed immediately and changed the trajectory of our family's life. This is a family that was strung out on meth. This is a family that was abusing alcohol like crazy. This was a family who was as messed up as you could possibly be. We told their story one Christmas a couple years after this. She goes on to write this. We've loved your family and have served in God's great church called James River is unto the Lord. It's so hard to type this out. I'm literally trying to type between tears. Our children love the house of God. We are so grateful for your leadership, eternally grateful, and we're grateful for the structure and safety and stability of our church. We're grateful that God has called us here to James River to be under your leadership, and we found a home 21 years ago. We love you and each of your children so much. We pray for you often, and if you hear me get a little vocal on Sunday, just know it's super hard to keep my excitement down. Thanks again, Deb Hedgecourth. If you know the Hedgecourth, then you know what a great story that is. Chris and Deb are part of the church. Their kids serve on staff. It's really an amazing story. If somebody had seen Chris, you'd have wondered, even if God does save him, what's his life going to look like? This is the power of the gospel. It can save anyone. It can change anyone. It can take somebody whose mind has been fried by drugs and heal them and change them. They have an incredible ministry to people in this church and in this community. When we come to Acts chapter 9, we come to a very powerful, very incredible story that shows us the truth God can save anyone. Last time we saw in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch that God saves people who are searching. He saves people that, that look like they're ready or they're interested. But lest we think that somehow our evangelism efforts and our prayers should be more focused on people that we think might be interested The Holy Spirit tells us the story of a man that if we saw him, we would have thought wouldn't within a million years ever want to hear the gospel. God can save anybody. 
He saves people who are looking for him and people who aren't looking anywhere for him. He saves people who are interested in him and he saves people who hate him. He saves people who have started reading their Bible but still don't know him and he saves people who have zero interest in the things of God because God can save anyone. We're going to look at the story of a man that we meet. His name is Saul. We know him eventually as the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 9, here's where you get the transition in the book of Acts from Saul to Paul. Then Saul, that's his Hebrew name, who was also called Paul, that's the Greek version of the Hebrew name, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Eliamus and said, so what you have is we're going to call him Paul because that's how we understand him in Christianity. But Luke starts by using his Hebrew name, and that is Saul. Just to give you a little background, he was born in the city of Tarsus. So here's Jerusalem. There's Damascus. He's going from Jerusalem on the road to Damascus. Somewhere in there is where he meets the Lord Jesus Christ. He will really begin his ministry in a more public way, though he's been involved in ministry at Antioch. We'll see that in Acts 11. Here is where he's born, in Asia Minor, where Asia Minor meets Syria, the city of Tarsus, a significant Roman city. His father was a Roman citizen, which is very, very interesting. And I mention this because probably his family were enslaved. Either his grandparents were enslaved, possibly his father was enslaved by the Romans, taken to Rome. There was a great enslavement of the Jewish people. And Pompey, the Roman general, freed the Jewish slaves. And when he freed them, gave them citizenship. We know that Paul was born a Roman citizen, so his parents got this citizenship. And all of that's simply to say that sometimes there are things in our past, in our past history, I'm talking about your family line. And it's less than glorious. Maybe it's a heartbreaking chapter For Paul's family, it would have been slavery. But God used that slavery to give Paul Roman citizenship so that when Paul is at the height of his ministry, he is going to appeal to Caesar. And when he appeals to Caesar, that means he is a Roman citizen, gets to talk directly to Caesar. God used the enslavement of his ancestors to bring about the citizenship of Paul that would allow him to present the gospel to the most powerful person in the world of his time. And in the book of Philippians, Paul says, all of Caesar's household greets you. In other words, he shared Christ with everybody. And the imperial guard that guards Caesar is chained to him 24 hours a day on an 18-inch chain, six-hour intervals. Now, it's one thing to be chained to a Roman soldier. It's another thing to be chained to the apostle Paul. And the results were predictable. One by one, they start getting saved. So God uses things from our past for the sake of the gospel in the future. And I don't know what your story is. I can just tell you that God wants to use your story in his story because history is his story. And what happened in your family line could be a part of him setting up a legacy for you to do ministry in Jesus' name. Here's Paul. His his father 
He's a Roman citizen. Paul's a Roman citizen. At age 13, he goes from Tarsus down to Jerusalem, and he studies under a, one of the more notable rabbis of his day, maybe the most notable rabbi, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And Paul becomes trained. He becomes a Old Testament scholar. He would have memorized the entire Old Testament. He would have an ability to almost to not only know it, but to also know the, the uh, different commentaries and rabbinic thoughts on all of it. He was a brilliant man. It's never mentioned that he ever met Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And Paul would have been approximately 25 years old at that time. So very likely, he's gone back to Tarsus while Jesus is doing his ministry in Jerusalem. But when you come to Acts chapter 9, Paul now is in Jerusalem. He is approximately 30 years old. He's either come back to observe some of the Jewish feasts and ends up staying, or it's very possible that he, because of his training, because of his relationship to Gamaliel, uh, because of what he's done even in that synagogue up there, that he's been appointed now to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, the ruling uh, body of the land of Israel. And I say that because in Acts chapter 26, Paul says this in giving his testimony, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So very likely he is a part of the Sanhedrin. He says, I arrived in Philippians chapter three, won't take time to look at it. I arrived ahead of many others. In other words, I was the head of my class and I was ahead of everybody my age in terms of my zeal for Judaism. The first time Paul's mentioned in the New Testament is in Acts chapter seven, they dragged him, that's Stephen. Remember, he's preached a great sermon. They can't stand it. They're going to kill him. They dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Paul. And Paul is there, and he's giving approval. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. We read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, but Paul began to destroy the church. So the persecution breaks out, and Paul's at the epicenter of that, wreaking havoc on the church, trying to stamp it out. First Timothy chapter 1, we get an idea of, of what Paul was like. Here's what Paul says. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's a, that's a startling statement. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't say, you know, Paul, you've been anointed until you got to that. I mean, you think you're the worst? I know a lot of, no, the Holy Spirit lets it stand. The Holy Spirit says, yeah, I think you're right there. So you need to understand, he's the worst. Name anybody you want to name who's a big sinner, Paul's got him beat. You say, what did he do? Well, in verse 13 of 1 Timothy, I was, a, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. It means he has no thought for human kindness. He's a bully. He got pleasure out of watching other people suffer and be tortured. 
In fact, in Acts chapter 26, in his testimony, he says, on the authority of the priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. So he would hurt them, he would injure them, he would threaten them, and my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. He not only causes them to blaspheme God, he murders people, he violently persecutes people. He was a Christ-hating sinner of the worst kind. The story of Paul tells us God can save anyone. And he will. And he wants to. And he chases you. He's chasing after you right now. Why do you think you're even listening to this message? Isn't that crazy? You, of all people, listening to this. But just like Chris 21 years ago, God knows where you're at. God knows what you've done. But greater than what you've done and where you've been is what God has for you. And nothing about what you've done has negated his purpose for your life. He wants to use you. He wants to, he wants to work in your life. He wants to do things in your life you can't begin to imagine. He's the God who chases people down. Even when they don't seem interested in him at all. What I want to do, just this isn't a complicated message. It's very, very simple from here. We got six verses. Let me give you three points. Three steps of salvation. Number one, salvation begins with divine contact. It begins with God reaching out to people. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. I mean, this is a very interesting statement. He breathes murderous threats in, he breathes murderous threats out. It's, his, it's how he does life. It's, what he, it's, it's the air he breathes. It's what motivates him. It's why he gets up in the morning. It's why he has a drive during the day. It's all he cares about. He goes to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and in the early days Christianity was called the way, today the way is a cult, so don't confuse the two. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So his whole intent is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get more Christians. I'm going I'm to kill more Christians. I'm going to destroy more of the church that Jesus has built. I'm going to destroy the bride of Christ Jesus loves. Here's a guy who's going completely opposite of what God would desire for anybody. And yet in the midst of this, God is chasing after him. God is pursuing him. Which tells us something wonderful about our salvation. God is always the one who initiates salvation. How many of you are glad God reached out to you long before you ever thought of reaching out to him? He was looking for you before you were ever looking for him. He loves you so much. Not everyone will see a heavenly vision like Saul. Not everyone will hear a voice. 
but God reaches out to every single person. And the fact you're hearing this message today means God loves you so much that he's reaching out to you where you're at. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, he loves you. You may have said no to him a thousand times. He loves you. Right now he's speaking to your heart. You can feel, you can feel something happening. It's God contacting you. As we look at Paul's story, we're going to take Acts 9, we're going to take Acts 22, we're going to take Acts 26, because in Acts 22 and Acts 26, Paul retells the story, and in the retelling of the story, gives us insight that we don't have from Acts chapter 9. Acts 9 and verse 3, as he neared Damascus, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. In verse 12 of Acts 26, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. So we're not just talking a light. We're talking a light brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. You say, well, what is that light? It's Jesus. It's the presence of the Lord. It's Jesus in all of his glory, absolutely blinding him. When John saw him in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16, John said, his face was like a sun shining in its brilliance. Verse 4 of Acts 9, Paul says he fell to the ground. Or it, Luke says he fell to the ground. Paul, when he retells it, says, we all, everybody traveling with him, the light comes down, the presence of God is there, they all fall to the ground. It's like the Garden of Gethsemane when they, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And the Roman soldiers say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And 600 Roman soldiers hit the ground. It's an appropriate response to the presence of the Lord. Again, John says in Revelation 1 and verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I passed out. Here's Paul, he says, Luke says, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. In Acts 22, Paul says this, my companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking. You say, why can't they understand the voice? What's, what's happening there? I think one of the ways to understand what's happening here is to think back to John chapter 12, and there was a moment in Jesus' ministry where something very similar happened. In John chapter 12 and verse 28, Jesus speaking says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So God the Father speaks. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. This is very interesting and I think very instructive for us. 
Jesus says, glorify your name. God responds by speaking. And the people acknowledge hearing it, but none of them are spiritually aware enough to know what it was. They fail to recognize the voice of God. There are some who think of it as an impersonal act of nature. Oh, it thundered. What a coincidence. Other people say, no, it's spiritual. Something spiritual is going on. There's probably an angel. We don't know for sure, but probably an angel is what they're saying to one another. But in either case, they don't think it has any bearing on them. Listen, when God visits his people, let's just apply it to where we're at right now, and God is healing, what's your response? Oh, that's quite a coincidence. I wonder if it's really true. I wonder if that really happened. I've never had that happen. You know, I, I just think a lot of these people, you know, ladies, shingles get better. You get better from shingles. I just think they're calling a miracle coincidence. Yeah, it was just thunder. And then other people are saying, yeah, God does heal some people, but you don't think it has any bearing on your life or any meaning to your life, and you're completely wrong. You've completely missed it. Because if God is working in a situation, then he's working in this situation to show you his power, to declare to you his glory, that you might glorify him, and that having seen what he's done, you, we apply it to our heart, and, and it, the application is manifold. On the one hand, it should build your faith to believe there's a God who heals, and that right now we're seeing that. On another, it should say, Lord, is there anything in my life that is not what it should be that is keeping me from being a channel, a conduit of your power into the lives of people who desperately need you. God, am I too indifferent right now? Am I, am I too lethargic spiritually to really enter in to the moment of what you're doing? God, do I even care? Or am I the armchair critic who says, yeah, I've seen God heal. Listen, when he's moving, it's a big deal. They missed the Son of God. Missed him. God in the flesh right there, oblivious. The Father speaks, can't hear you. I think it's thunder, maybe an angel. Huh, I don't know, what's for lunch? Listen, we have to be careful what we do with God's moving in our midst. Salvation begins with contact, number two. Salvation brings about divine conviction. Wherever there's salvation, there's a conviction of sin. Watch this, verse four. He fell to the ground, heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In Acts 26, verse 14, Paul says, we all, that's he and his company, fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Aramaic would be the common tongue of that day spoken in the land of Israel. In the religious circles, Hebrew would be spoken. In the secular circles, Greek would be spoken. But among the Jewish people, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You say, what's a goad? Well, a goad was a long stick with a sharp object in the end of it, and it would be used to direct oxen. And so what you do is if you were, were wanting the oxen to move forward or to stop doing what they were doing, you'd kind of slap it on their hide, and it would, it would move them. It would prompt the ox to move forward. It could be painful for the ox, depending on how hard it was used. Some scholars believe this, that what, what's happening here when you say, how is he being goaded? A lot of scholars believe that Paul never got over Stephen's sermon and the points of the sermon and the presence of the Lord on Stephen and the words he spoke as they were crushing the life out of him, throwing rocks at his head as he said, Father, forgive them. And as he looked and he saw the heavens open and he saw Jesus at the right hand of God. You know, this speaks to people who you love the Lord, but you're trying to reach maybe a family member and they're, they're not only indifferent, they're absolutely belligerent and they want nothing to do with your gospel. Nothing to do with your faith. They ridicule it. They malign it. They try to undercut it. They say things. They're nasty. They're disinterested. What this tells me is they can't run away from the words you've said. And they can't run away from the presence of God they've felt on your life. And they can't forget the way you acted when under pressure and there was a grace on your life and a gentleness and a brokenness and a forgiveness. And you thought it went right over the top of their head. And this tells me no. That in the times you can't see it, they're working through that in their mind. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to understand. They're, they're kicking against it. It keeps pricking their conscience. You thought they didn't have one. It's just buried. It keeps coming back to them. It keeps haunting them. It keeps working on them. For Paul, it's tearing him apart. He's trying so hard in his situation to serve God with a bunch of rules, but it's not real and it's not working. And he knows there's something in his life he doesn't have that they do. And all of that is called conviction. Before God works, brings somebody to salvation, there's conviction. The Holy Spirit comes to convict people of sin. That, that you need him, that you're not enough on your own, that there's something missing in your life. And maybe that's why for some of you, you get really uptight. You get really, oh, when somebody's trying to share Christ, are you a Christian? You're like, would you guys quit talking about that? It bothers you. You're not comfortable talking about spiritual things because every time people talk about spiritual things, you feel this twinge of conviction. Listen, if you're not comfortable talking about spiritual things and enjoying the Lord and, and being in his presence and having somebody pray around you, if all that makes you uneasy, it's because there's a conviction of the Holy Spirit on your life because you don't know God. You maybe thought you did, 
Paul thought he did, but he didn't. Number three, salvation builds to divine conversion. Verse five, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And somewhere in the white spaces between verse 5 and verse 6, Paul gets saved. Would you notice he acknowledges who Jesus is, that he's alive, which means he's raised from the dead, that he's God and that he's in charge. Who are you, Lord? And then Jesus says, okay, if I'm the Lord, now you get up and you go do what I tell you to do. That's, that's conversion. You, you say, how do you know? Well, look at this in Acts 22. Who are you, Lord, I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting, he replied. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. He calls Jesus Lord, and he does what Jesus tells him to do. Salvation is evidenced by one thing. Primarily, obedience. If a person says they believe in Jesus, but then they don't do what Jesus says, are they saved? And some of you want to say maybe, but the answer is no. Jesus said, Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I ask? Because it doesn't make sense to call me Lord if you're not going to do what I ask. I'm not your Lord. At salvation, a person not only puts their faith in Christ, believing that he died for their sins and he rose again, but they also commit their life to following him. This is a part of, this is a part of coming to Christ. If any man would come ask after me, Jesus said this. He must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. That means you say no to yourself. You pick up your cross. What does that mean? It means I'm going to die. I'm going to die to my desires and my dreams, and I'm going to pick up his desires and his dreams. And I'm going to follow him. Where he leads, that's where I'm going. It's not like, hey, Lord, uh, before I met you, I was headed this way, so if it's just the same to you, I'm going to keep going. And Jesus says, no, if, if you're following me, you're following me. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is in charge. Jesus reigns. He rules. That's what that means. When a person is saved, a part of it is saying, Jesus, you're in charge of my life. And believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. You have to have both. A lot of people want to say, well, I believe. So therefore, I'm saved. Again, if obedience isn't a part of your following of Christ, then I would have to suggest to you that there's a 50-50 chance at the very least you're not saved. And I say it could be higher. Because if meeting Jesus didn't change your life enough to cause you to follow him, then you probably were never born again at all. You had an encounter with Christ, but it wasn't saving. 
Paul goes on and says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. So it's in your heart you believe he died for your sins and that God no longer holds those sins against you. You're set free from that. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. It's when you say, Jesus, I confess your Lord. That's what it's saying right there. I confess your Lord. You're in charge. Where you lead, I follow. Where you, where you go, that's where I'm headed. That's Paul. He's, he calls Jesus Lord. And he does what Jesus tells him to do. Look at it in verse 8. Paul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. He's blind. Nobody else is blind, incidentally. They all saw the blinding light, but they're not blind. But Paul's blind. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. I want to ask you a question. If that happened to you, how would you feel about that? Would you be saying, well, God, if that's how you're going to treat me, I don't want any part. I mean, that's where a lot of people would go instantly. Not Paul. He's met Jesus. And if he's blind, he still knows Jesus. If he can see, he still knows Jesus. But either way, he's following Jesus. You say, what happened? Why is he blinded? The light was so brilliant. It blinded him. And I believe for the next three days, he just meditated on Jesus. One commentator puts it this way. What was the last thing Saul ever saw? Jesus. Have you ever looked at the sun and then everywhere else you looked, all you could see was the sun? It said if you look at the sun long enough, you'll become blind. Saul's blindness was not the blindness of darkness. It was the blindness of light. For three days, all he ever saw was the sun. He couldn't get rid of the vision of Jesus, so he spent the three days getting acquainted with Jesus. And I think that is when all the old things died, and they died hard. That was when faith, love, joy, and peace were born in him. What a conversion. God can save anyone.